welcome to Trinity United Methodist Church in Duncanville, Texas. Today we continue our sermon series entitled Christianity's Family Tree. In this series, we're exploring the different branches and denominations of the Christian church. Join us now for the message, Anglicanism, the Middle Way. Good morning and welcome to worship here at Trinity United Methodist Church in Duncanville, Texas. I'm Jane Grainer and I'm the senior pastor. And I'm Wesley McCall and I'm the music director. And we're just so glad that you've joined us for worship this morning, particularly any of those out there who may be joining us for the first time. Now, ask yourself a question. What do the British royal family, a book of prayers, and traumatic decapitation have in common with each other? And what does it all have to do with John Wesley? And if you'd like the answer to those questions, then just stay tuned for our message later on in the worship service. I'd also like to invite each of you, if you've not done so already, to please make an offering to the ministry of this church so we can keep these live casts going. You can do that by either just mailing a check to the church. You can find the mailing address on our website, tumcd.org. You can also give directly through that same website or through our church center app. And so now in a spirit of worship and prayer, Please listen to our centering psalm. From Psalm 119. I rejoice at your word like one who finds great spoils. I hate and abhor falsehood, but I love your law. Seven times a day I praise you for your righteous ordinances. Great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. I hope for your salvation, O Lord, and I fulfill your commandments. My soul keeps your decrees. I love them exceedingly. I keep your precepts and decrees, for all my ways are before you. Let my cry come before you, O Lord. Give me understanding according to your word. Let my supplication come before you. Deliver me according to your promises. My lips will pour forth praise because you teach me your statutes. My, my tongue will sing of your promise for all your commandments are right. And now for our opening prayer. Lord, we pray that thy grace may always proceed and follow us and make us continually to be given to all good works through Jesus Christ our Lord, who liveth and reigneth with thee and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. That prayer actually was from the Episcopal Church's Book of Common Prayer. It's their collect of the day. And now, even though we cannot be together in the same space, we are together in the same time. So my prayer for you is peace be with you. Our prayer for illumination. Eternal God, in the reading of the scripture, may your word be heard. In the meditation of our hearts, may your word be known. And in the faithfulness of our lives, may your word be shown. Amen. Our scripture reading this morning comes from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, beloved, to admonish the idlers, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with all of them. 
See that none of you repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good, good to one another and to all. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise the words of prophets, but test everything, hold fast to what is good, abstain from every form of evil. May the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be kept sound and blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do this. The word of God for the people of God. These last few weeks we've been exploring Christianity's family tree, the different branches and denominations that make up the Christian church, the body of Christ. Now, each branch of the family has its own strengths and weaknesses. Each church has sought to fulfill uh, the great commandment and the great commission, just as Christ has charged us. Each has sought to be God's ambassadors to, to a confused and a broken world that is just yearning to be reconciled to its creator, even if the creation is not always acknowledging that longing. And each church traces its heritage back to that first Pentecost Sunday, when the Holy Spirit came with power to establish the church, the body of Christ. Both are Eastern Orthodox and are Roman Catholic siblings. They see their respective branch of the church as the true descendant from those apostles of long ago. And both the followers of the great reformers Martin Luther and John Calvin sought to reform the church in an attempt to bring it back to those apostolic roots and to take away what they felt like were encrusted layers of tradition that was inhibiting the light of that New Testament church. Our very own John Wesley described how his heart was strangely warmed that night so long ago on London's Aldersgate Street. And this heartwarming experience then propelled him to devote the rest of his life to spreading the gospel. He was even known to say that the world is my parish. And then there's the Church of England, also known as the Anglican Church. The origins of the Anglican Church, well, they cannot be tra uh, traced through those the mystic fog back to the apostolic church. It was not inspired by a deep desire to reform the church to get it back to its New Testament roots. And so it would more closely hew to the vision of the Holy Spirit on that first Pentecost Sunday. No, the Church of England was established so that King Henry VIII of England could get an annulment from his first wife, Catherine of Aragon. After nearly 24 years of marriage, their union had produced only one child that survived, and that was a daughter named Mary. And so from there set in motion one of history's greatest soap operas, maybe the best and greatest soap opera of all time. And in Henry's relentless search for a male heir, he went through a total of six wives, uh, becoming more and more mentally unhinged with each marriage uh, as one marriage after another ended by annulment and then with a couple of beheadings and a death by childbirth just thrown in there for good measure. Well, in addition to that daughter, Mary, from his first marriage, Henry fathered two other children, a daughter, Elizabeth, with Anne Boleyn, and a son, Edward, with wife number three, that's Jane Seymour. 
Now, all three of Harry, or excuse me, Henry's children ended up sitting on the throne of England. But before sending, but that was not before sending England into a series of religious whiplashes where the whole nation was just thrown back and forth between Protestantism and Catholicism. Henry never intended to start a new church. In fact, early in his reign, before this old soap opera began, Pope Leo X had actually named him a defender of the faith for a book that he wrote defending the seven sacraments and excoriating that Protestant Reformation that was happening over there on the continent. Well, even after severing ties with Rome, Henry really only thought of himself as the temporal head of the Catholic Church in the country of England. And he wasn't one of those radical reformers like Luther and Calvin over there on the continent. It wasn't until after his death in seven, or excuse me, 1547, when his son Edward took the throne at the age of nine, and then that young king fell ill and died at the age of 15, that the church then became much more clearly Protestant. Even though he had only a very short reign, uh, young King Edward actually took a great deal of interest in the church, and he was uh, happy to let it become much more of a uh, predominantly Protestant church over its Roman Catholic roots. Oh, but then he died, and then his half-sister Mary took over, and she immediately brought back Roman Catholicism for several years. And then after her death in 1557, her half-sister Elizabeth then just as promptly reestablished, or excuse me, just as promptly uh, severed all ties with Rome. And then she tried something that her half-siblings did not do. She tried to find a middle way, a middle uh, path between Protestantism and Catholicism that would then stay within the Church of England. Elizabeth advocated for a church that embraced moderate Protestant theology and doctrine with the pomp and circumstance of the Catholic Church. Now, few were fully satisfied with this compromise, but no one was so enraged by it that they felt the need to fight over it. And so, thankfully for all involved, this very wise and tolerant queen was then able to reign for the next 45 years. And during that time, the Church of England was able to become fully established as an independent church. Elizabeth's successor, by the way, was James I, and he despised both the Catholics and the Calvinists. And so he wanted to produce a new translation of the Bible into English that would reflect Anglican theology. So he gathered up all the best Bible scholars of the day, and he set them on the task of translating the Bible. And it's from this effort that we now have the King James Bible that was published in 1611 and was at the time a masterpiece of biblical scholarship and still remains a masterpiece of, of, of English literature to this day. Now, forging this middle path, this, this building of bridges, is one of the quintessential characteristics of the Anglican Church, or as they are better known here in the U.S. as the Episcopalian Church. Though, as one Episcopalian put it, the problem with being a bridge is that you end up getting stepped on by both sides. Yet establishing that middle path, the way that refuses to choose between the either-or and instead wants to be the church of the both-and, 
being that kind of church is a trait that Episcopalians then share with us Methodists. Of course, that really shouldn't be too surprising since John Wesley remained a, pre uh, a priest in the Church of England his entire life in good standing, if not always not without controversy. I do know of one Protestant pastor whose wife, even after 40 years of marriage, refused to join the Methodist Church. She wanted to remain a lifelong Episcopalian. As she said, if Anglicanism was good enough for John Wesley, then it was good enough for her. Uh, you can't argue against that logic. Well, another thing that we Methodists and Episcopalians share is that we attract a lot of Bathlicks. Now, a Bathlick is a Baptist and a Catholic who decide to marry one another despite all advice in the contrary. So when Baptists or other Protestants marry Catholics, they often land in either the Episcopal or the Methodist Church. It's, it's here in one of these two churches that they're able to find common ground and a point of compromise. Well, I would like to take a, a moment to clarify some terms. We, I've used the term the Church of England, the Anglican Church, the Episcopalian Church. So generally when I talk about the Church of England, I'm talking about the Church in England. But as the Church of England liked to spread that Anglican message wherever there was set a British flag, this resulted then in the Anglican Church being established pretty much all over the world, including the American colonies. But then after that little thing called the American Revolution, it, it became a fact that any title that had, say, the Church of England in it was not going to be too popular. So the Church of England here in America decided to change its name to the Episcopalian Church or the Episcopal Church. However, it really kind of gets complicated from there because here in the U.S., all Episcopalians are Anglicans, but not all Anglicans are Episcopalians, though most Episcopalians are Anglicans. Are you confused yet? Well, don't worry about it, because from here on out, I'm going to just be using the terms Anglicanism and Episcopalianism pretty much interchangeably from here on out. Well, the Anglicans have a name for their drive to find this middle way. It's called the Via Medea, which is Latin for, unsurprisingly, middle way. Via Media refers primarily to the balance of Catholic and Protestant elements within Anglicanism, but it also refers to Anglicanism's desire to carve out a broad and inclusive middle theology. Now, not everyone appreciates the Via Media. Uh, some Catholics have been known to refer, sometimes rather snarkily, to refer to the Episcopal Church as Catholic light to which Episcopalians have responded with the Episcopal Church, all of the pageantry with none of the guilt. A very good slogan indeed. Well, some of the things that Episcopalians share with Catholicism is, first of all, the recognition of the threefold orders of deacon, priest, and bishop. Both Episcopalians and Catholics cross themselves and do a whole lot of bending and bowing in their worship services. Both services, or excuse me, both churches recognize seven sacraments. The classic definition of a sacrament, by the way, is that it is an outward and visible sign of an inward and invisible grace. Sacraments are uh, means through which grace is mediated or conferred. 
Now, the Episcopal Church divides the seven sacraments, uh, two and five. They have two of what they call the gospel sacraments of baptism and Eucharist or Holy Communion. The other five they call the sacramental rites. And these, these include the same sacraments that the Catholic Church would recognize. Uh, confirmation, that is the adult affirmation of their baptism. Uh, reconciliation of a penitent, that is private confession with a priest. Uh, holy matrimony. Holy orders, that is the ordination of those deacons, uh, priests, and bishops. And finally, unction, or the anointing of the sick and dying. Another facet shared by Episcopalianism and Catholicism is an emphasis on prayer and uh, spiritual disciplines, for which more will be said later. Also, like most other Protestants, Episcopalians emphasize the ministry of the laity and see the laity as equal partners with the clergy in the ministry of the church. And along with other Protestants, Episcopalian clergy are allowed to marry. Uh, the Episcopal Church started ordaining women in 1974. Now, of course, the Methodist Church started ordaining women in 1520, or excuse, not 1526. That would have been amazing. They started ordaining women in 1956, but it's not a contest, even though it really kind of is. On the other hand, the Episcopal Church ordained the first openly gay priest in 1976, so they were kind of way ahead of us on uh, of, of, of us Methodists there. For the most part, Anglican doctrine reflects Protestant doctrine. But Anglicanism's theological methods reflect both Protestant and Catholic elements. Anglicans look to three different norms and sources for theological reflection. First, they give theological priority to Scripture. What does the Bible reveal to us about the triune God and the fallible human beings who try to stay in relationship with this triune God? Next, Anglicans look to church tradition to interpret scripture and as a source and norm for theology. What has the church historically taught as it wrestles in its relationship with Christ? And finally, Anglicans apply God's gift, good gift of reason to analyze God's revelation and to discern God's will. How can our reason assist us in perceiving God and, and responding to God's gift of grace? These three sources of norm for theology, scripture, tradition, and reason, are referred to as Anglicanism's three-legged stool. Now, if you're a Methodist, the three-legged stool should sound rather familiar to you. They are three of the four uh, sources and norms that we recognize in our Wesleyan quadrilateral. As a priest of the Church of England, John Wesley would have inherited this three-legged stool as part of his Anglican heritage. Throughout his writings, he would routinely refer to scripture, tradition, and reason as he laid out his gospel message. But he also, in his uh, sermons and messages, referred to Human experience is also a source and norm for theology. Uh, human experience in general, but particularly uh, religious or spiritual experience. As a result, Wesley Wesleyan and Anglican theology ends up being very similar. Of all of the other members of Christianity's family tree, Methodists share the most theological ground with our Anglican siblings.
Again, not too surprisingly, considering our shared history. Now, last week I said that in many ways, Methodists and Presbyterians share a similar ethos and kind of a common sensibility, uh, even if we've had our historical theological differences. If you walked into a worship service, you might find it very, you might find yourself very hard pressed to tell the difference between a Methodist or a Presbyterian worship service, because they would be so similar. And as we talked about last week, the only hint you might have is when you got to the Lord's Prayer and we Methodists said trespasses and the Presbyterians said debtors. But by contrast, we share, again, the most theological similarities with the Episcopalians. However, you would be able to tell the difference between a Methodist and an Episcopalian worship service. In fact, actually, you might confuse the Episcopalian worship service with a Catholic worship service. Well, that is, unless, of course, uh, there was a woman priest, then you know it would be the Episcopalians. Perhaps the most significant distinctive of the Anglican Church is the use of the Book of Common Prayer during its worship services. Now, Episcopalian, Episcopalian worship follows a much more prescribed and structured or even formal order of worship than do we Methodists. And this order is found in their Book of Common Prayer. And many Episcopalians even will bring their own personal copy of the Book of Common Prayer to their worship services with them each week. I have here two uh, examples of the Book of Common Prayer. Here's a, um, a common paperback that is often used in their churches, the Book of Common Prayer in Episcopalian churches. Here is a, a small copy of the Book of Common Prayer that I actually purchased at Christ Church in Oxford, England, with a nice leather cover. Now, most Episcopalians feel that it is the Book of Common Prayer that binds them together as a church and as a congregation. It transcends the differences of race or gender or age or theological orientation. It engages the people together as the body of Christ into communal acts of worship and prayer. And they use a Latin phrase to kind of sum all this up. Lex arandi, lex credendi. That is, the law of prayer is the law of belief. In other words, what we pray becomes what we believe. In this way of thinking, then prayer and worship become the most important acts of the church, for it is prayer and worship that are the engines of the church. Prayer and worship uh, empowers all that the church is, does and imbues it with the power of the Holy Spirit. All the church does is vital, whether it's teaching or evangelism or social justice, maybe sometimes particularly social justice, but it is the Holy Spirit that empowers and enables the work of the church, and it is worship and prayer that focuses and renews our souls in the power of the Holy Spirit in order for us to perform that ministry and be the hands and feet of Christ out in the world. Now, the Anglican life of worship places great emphasis on corporate prayer, but also on individual prayer in the life of the individual Christian. Episcopalians are encouraged to use the Book of Common Prayer as part of their daily personal devotions. It is a tradition to pray at set times of the day throughout the day, usually sometimes two or three times set throughout the day, but then the individual can say these daily prayers throughout the day of their daily life. 
And these set times are called the divine office or the liturgy of the hours. And yes, there is an app for that. And yet there are actually several apps for that. Just go to the Apple App Store and search Episcopal and a, a number of selections will pop up to help you stay and pray your daily hours. Now, for most Methodists, this would represent a new way to pray, a new way to recognize and then re-energize your relationship with God. Anglicans are just very attached to their Book of Common Prayer. Many develop a deep love for the beauty of the language. Now, while others may find this language, they might find it overly formal, the timelessness of the language is one of its major attractions. It is felt that these very carefully composed prayers convey a depth, a depth of emotion, theological acuity, and spiritual sophistication that easily outstrips the spontaneous prayers that might be uttered just on the spot. And I, I must admit, I sometimes lose patience with those who kind of just pray publicly off the top of their heads and sometimes the words just come off as incoherent or jumbled. In fact, there's often a preponderance to repeat the word just, as in, Father, we just want to thank you. Dear God, we just ask you. Jesus, if you will just... Dot, dot, dot. I grow even more impatient when that person is me. I've heard prayers come out of my own mouth that are practically sometimes incomprehensible. And yes, several of them have contain multiple uses of the word just. And so I ask your forgiveness for any of you who have had to sit through uh, one of my uh, not so good prayers. Pastors are often asked to pray spontaneously and sometimes it works out well and sometimes it doesn't. But there are times when the urgency and the gravity of a situation calls for the kind of spontaneous prayer that just sometimes spills out from somewhere deep in our soul, comes sometimes almost bypassing our brain altogether. The kind of prayer that Paul talked about when he talked about where the Holy Spirit intercedes for us with sighs too deep for words. So what kind of prayer is better? Well-constructed, theologically deep prayers that are found in, uh, in such sources as the Book of Common Prayer, or in spontaneous prayers where you use your own words to commune with God? And I bet you've guessed the right answer already. Both are necessary for us to have a, well, a well-rounded spirituality. Ideally, we should be able to get what we need through a well-stocked repertoire of prayer forms. Prayer that is both well-written and off-the-cuff, that both comes from the head and the heart, that is both deep and direct, is joyful and sad and grateful and sometimes even silly because we know God has a sense of whimsy. Being the church of the via media, that church of the middle way, the church of the both and and not the either or, well, it's not easy being that kind of church. It means holding the ambiguities of faith and the contradiction of life in a kind of gracious tension and living in that gracious tension while being committed to a life of prayer and worship and an appreciation of the beauty of the Book of Common Prayer. And it is in this gracious tension that in turn 
blessed its English son, John Wesley, which then blessed all of us heirs. Amen. Last Sunday, I was so uh, busy uh, for us having to have that in-person worship service that, by the way, I thought went great. And it was so great to see you guys out there and see all your faces out there uh, and still to see so many who still joined with us online. Uh, we really had, between in-person and online, we had a great turnout last week, and it was just great to see all of that. But I forgot that it was the Sunday that was closest to the Feast of St. Francis. So I forgot to pray for the animals last Sunday. So I'd like to take that opportunity uh, to, well, uh, to pray for all the animals that so enrich our lives. And of course, I mean our pets. You probably heard one of, one of my cats started meowing during the sermon again, as they often do. And I know many of you, you have cats and dogs and birds and gerbils and fish and a whole menagerie of animals that share your home. And also just thanks for um, the agricultural animals that enrich our life. And thanks for the wild animals that are also there. I, I, I rejoice in the ducks that I get to feed just about every day of the week and the joy that they bring my life to my life. And so I wanted to offer up this prayer of Albert Schweitzer. This is a prayer he wrote for the animals that he came across. So let us pray. Hear our humble prayer, O God, for our friends, the animals, especially for animals who are suffering, for any that are hunted or lost or deserted or frightened or hungry, for all that must be put to death. We entreat for them all thy mercy and pity. And for those who deal with them, we ask a heart of compassion and gentle hands and kindly words. Make us ourselves to be true friends to animals and so to share the blessings of the merciful. Well, amen to that. And now with the confidence of the children of God, let us pray the prayer that our Lord taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Remember that you can always find a recording of our service uh, on our website, tumcd.org, on our Facebook page, or on our church podcast, Jane's Most Excellent Church Adventure. And again, if any of you would like to contact me or the church, just message us through our Facebook page. Your action item for this week Try it for even just one day. Pray that day away. Set aside two to three uh, times scheduled for prayer that day and see what kind of difference it makes in your day and see if that might not be a spiritual discipline that you want to add to your life. And now receive this benediction that is also taken from the Book of Common Prayer. Glory to God whose power working in us can do infinitely more than we can ask or imagine. Glory to him from generation to generation in the church and in Christ Jesus forever and ever. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Love your neighbor and go in peace.
hope you enjoyed and were blessed by today's service. Join us next Sunday here on Facebook Live at 11 a.m. Next week, we'll be exploring the Baptist Church as we continue our sermon series exploring the different branches and denominations of the church in Christianity's family tree. If you can't join us live, you can always listen to the recording of our service. You'll find that on our podcast, Jane's Most Excellent Church Adventure. God bless you in the week ahead. We'll see you Sunday at Trinity United Methodist Church.